we don't know when it's going to end. We don't know when we really are going to be truly safe. Kids know that. And there's uh, it, all that uncertainty is really contributing to chronic stress. Yeah, I want to make the distinction here. An increase of knowledge does not mean an increase of wisdom. And that's where leadership, superintendents, business managers, principals, teachers will really shine. And so COPE stands for culture, organizational values, politics, and environment. But in security management, you're looking for those initials behind the name. That's a way to quickly sort through who is going to have that shared language, that perspective that I can leverage and, and be a valuable asset to me if I'm looking to expand my business. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Francie Crapu Hobson, PhD, is the Associate Professor and Director of Clinical Training for the School of Psychology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She is also the co-chair of the School Safety and Crisis Response Committee of the National Association of School Psychologists. Dr. Francie, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Thanks. Nice to be here. Today, we're going to talk about ensuring psychological safety in returning to school. Talk to us about this. It's a it's a tricky situation. It's incredibly tricky, and it's definitely uncharted territory for us. Um, we've we've never had to go back to school after a crisis, if you will, um, that has lasted this long and had such widespread impact. And schools have gotten really pretty good at um, returning kids to the school environment after an acute traumatic stressor, so something that has a discrete beginning and end, like a natural disaster, for example, or an act of violence. And that's what makes this so hard, is there's no expiration date on this pandemic. We don't know when it's going to end. We don't know when we really are going to be truly safe. Kids know that. And there's uh, all that uncertainty is really contributing to chronic stress and difficulties with regulating behavior and and attending and all those kinds of things that kids need to do to really be successful at school. And then we also have the adults who are struggling with it, who are impacted by the uncertainty and the anxiety, as well as the impacts of the virus itself, the pandemic itself. So it, we are really, really scrambling trying to figure out how are we going to get back to the educational environment and really get kids back on track in terms of learning and academics. Do we run the risk of, of kids becoming disinterested in learning, detaching? Yeah, I think it's going to be incredibly challenging to get them back in the groove. We have no idea what's been really what's been happening at at home in terms of this, you know, the virtual um, instruction and the distance learning. We have no idea if kids have learned anything. Probably some kids have, and probably those kids who were already just fine and high achievers. But I think that we're going to have a whole bunch of kids coming back who are going to have some pretty significant gaps in their learning and may struggle to get motivated to get back on track. And part of that isn't necessarily 
a conscious, I don't want to do this, but really struggling with just the ability to do it, to, to get their brains to a place where they can start to um, absorb new knowledge and, and really learn, especially new content. That's going to, that's going to take a while. We'll probably have to do um, a lot of review and repetition before we can even start thinking about introducing new content to kids because because they're in this state of chronic stress. And what happens in, in the brain then is they're walking around in this constant state of arousal. And if you think about when you're a little bit anxious or worried, it, it's really hard to sit and concentrate and learn. And so we're gonna be, we're gonna be challenged with that. For many kids, uh, school's the safest place to be. It's where they get fed. It's where they have a routine. It's where they know nobody's going to hurt them. It's where they have consistency and they and hopefully have some relationships with folks. And now we've had kids who have been home for four, five, six months in environments that that are have all kinds of challenges and may have had increased challenges because of the pandemic in terms of you know, economic challenges and food and housing insecurities, they may have had illness. Um, you know, some family members may have gotten sick or even died as a result of COVID-19. And the closer you are physically or emotionally to someone who's been impacted by this, the more likely you're going to be impacted. So I absolutely agree that we are going to have kids who are coming in who were not on our radar previously, who were not struggling previously, who are gonna walk in and present with some, some pretty significant challenges. The fact that we don't, there's still so much uncertainty. We don't know the course of this thing and we don't know really what's gonna happen in the fall. And we have school districts who plan to come back, you know, full-time or part-time and then scale back and say, wait a minute, we're going to start off the year completely um, with distance learning. Those kinds of disruptions to planning and to knowing what's going to happen. And then, whoops, nope, we don't know that's going to happen. Absolutely increases anxiety. In this country, we are very, very much about local control. So each district gets to make their own decisions about how they're going to to do this. Obviously, under the guise of any, you know, state requirements or orders, for example, like related to mask wearing um, or social distancing. But other than that, they are figuring this out on their own. And there is absolutely no consistency um, from one district to another. And that's really creating a lot of stress and anxiety for folks. And it makes it very difficult for the folks who work in the schools to plan um, in terms of how they're going to support kids. And that means, and I mean everybody who works in that school, um, whether it's the, the teachers themselves, the administrators, the mental health professionals, and, and, and our security folks. And I think, you know, that's, that, that role is an interesting one. And I wonder, I'm really curious how districts have been communicating to them about what their role is or will be in this context when we come back 
um, in the fall and in, in terms of whatever that looks like. Oh, I'm really a... curious, it's kind yeah. of forgotten, the, kind of the forgotten school personnel. Well, it's going to be a different model for sure. I mean, if we put security personnel in the business of checking for masks and checking, checking temperatures, they become part of the, what, healthcare process? I don't know. Give us some advice on how we might look at that uh, issue with the security personnel and what would you recommend we do to kind of get them ready? Well, I think you really nailed it in terms of making sure that their role is very clearly defined and they know what that is. And you know, that's important anyway, not even, you know, even before all this. Um, but I think they have an important role to play because they are pretty critical um, when it comes to safety. And I believe not just in terms of physical safety, but in terms of they can be incredibly helpful in fostering a sense of psychological safety via, especially via their relationships with kids. And we know that relational help is a buffer to, to stress. And so I think they can be incredibly helpful. And I, you know, if that's part of their role in terms of, hey, buddy, you got to make sure you have a mask on and I'm going to make sure that you're you're feeling okay to come in the door. Um, I think it would also be amazing if they are checking in with kids uh, with whom they already have a relationship, especially if we start off the school year virtually. And I know that our mental health folks have really um, made efforts to do that, where they're reaching out to their kids who were high flyers or who were already on their caseload or who they were concerned about to check in with them, even with a phone call or a text to say, hey, how, how's it going? Uh, especially if they were a little bit worried about the home environment. And I, th I think it would be great if those kinds of, of things happened with with other adults in the building, including security personnel, um, to continue to foster those relationships and to continue to be a source of support uh, for those kids. And, you know, I don't know how frequently that happens, uh, but I think it would be, I think it would be great if they, if they were reaching out to kids who, who they know and, who they had a relationship with just to check in and say, Hey, just wanted to see how you're doing and let you know I'm here and thinking about you and care about you and can't wait till you come back and um, make, you know, making eye contact with them and saying hi and getting to know their names when they come back in, that can make a big difference. You know, the more healthy relationships, especially with trusted adults kids have, the better off they're going to be. And this will make it easier on everybody in the school building. Dr. Francie Crapu-Hopson, thank you so much for coming on Security Management Magazine. Thank you. Paul Tim, Vice President of Facility Engineering Associates, is a board-certified physical security professional. He is the author of School Security, How to Build and Strengthen a School Safety Program, and a nationally acclaimed expert in physical security. He is also a member of the ASIS International School Safety and Security Council. Paul Tim, welcome to Security Management Magazine, my friend. Thanks, Chuck, glad to be here. Well, boy, do we have a topic today, the pandemic in school and kids. Where do we start? I guess the, the best place to start is, why is this so different? I went to the Sumo earthquake, the Hong Kong flu, we stayed home, we thought it was fun. That's not what's going on anymore. 
It's really, really a different school environment. Tell us what's going on. Well, I think what uh, the difference is here in terms of what we might have gone through when we were in school and what kids now are going through is that they are so far ahead of us. And so what we've got is authority issues to address. And, um, and, and they're ahead of us because um, as we struggled with e-learning and, and many schools did, uh, the students were not struggling. The students were kind of looking at us going, why can't they get this? Why, why are they not um, able to make technology work? Because they've not had any barriers of entry to technology. They have no fear. They're uh, intuitive in, in ways that we can't imagine. And beyond all those things, Chuck, they've got access to information that we, we, we may have the same access, but we can't access it as fast and quickly. And um, and so they are much more attuned to social issues. So this pandemic carries with it social issues. There's big political divides. Um, there's people who dig in and say, I'll never wear a mask or I'll never be without a mask. And the students, um, the students are ahead of us with that information. And, and even, even the protests that we've seen surface during the pandemic, yes, something during something, um, they've been leading um, and, and and so they're looking at us going, why, why? And it all is um, it caused a lack of respect. And I'm not saying the sky is falling because we can address this authority issue, but we better address it before and then when kids come back. Well, I think this is a brilliant point. And doesn't it really kind of come down to generational communication? There's always a communication gap between the generations, right? The younger generation thinks they know more than the older generation. But I think here, it may be true. <laughs> like you said, they have instant access to information. So if you put out some statistic that says, we need to close schools because of ABC, they're going to vet that. They're going to get on the web. They're going to check things out. And they're going to come back and say, you know, I don't think so. Or I do think so. And this is going to cause a lot of conflict. Is it really a, a leadership issue then? Don't we have to well, lead more effectively? That's right. And, it, and by the way, we have to co-lead. <laughs> um, we've already got mission statements for our schools that say we are uh, preparing our students to be successful at the next level of education in the vocational arena and in life. And if we really mean that, now will be the time to to uh, and I'm not saying let, let the students lead, but we better be leading with them and, and giving them opportunity to to have a voice. And and that voice doesn't mean that we're we're giving up our authority. I think it, I think the mark of good leadership will be to include students in places where they should have a voice. And by the way, social media is one of those places, Chuck. Is, or the misapplication of information, I think, is something we really need to focus on. We have people in authority positions that are putting out information about the pandemic. Well, intentions aside, uh, it may be erroneous because, you know, no, not everybody's getting this stuff right. And so now we're coming down to places where maybe authorities are accused of misinformation when really it's just a simple mistake or lack of knowledge in something. What, what do we do to, to make the kids confident in our leadership? Because that's really what we need to do. Children, and when I say children, I'm going to say, you know, let's just call them all students K-12 and under, and even college students, they really look to adults for leadership. And where lack of leadership exists, kids will take their own lead, maybe not in the best direction. Right. Uh, and I think it, it requires a collaborative approach. And again, I'm not saying let's let students make decisions. But what I am saying is, why aren't we giving them the opportunity to explain 
a little bit more about, and, and now I'm really entering into sensitive things here, but TikTok or Snapchat and why they're using it and what, what it all means. Um, and, and not just that, but w from their perspective um, in the social issues of the day, make no mistake about it. All of all of what is the backdrop to to this is social issues, because the pandemic, even if it is a virus, is caused has caused people to take to to put forth agendas. And and sometimes there are people who are um, I mean, and let's just say we've got Department of Health people who have flip flopped on things. Is it on surfaces? Should we wear a mask? Do we need gloves? We flip flopped on things. But then there's been plenty who have used agendas and they've dug in even if even if data shows they're wrong, <laughs> they're staying where they are. And you talk about something that is confounding and and um, unacceptable to students um, that that's. So we have to, I think, make them part of the dialogue. Yeah, I want to make the distinction here. An increase of knowledge does not mean an increase of wisdom. And that's where leadership, superintendents, business managers, principals, teachers will really shine as they allow room for the voice of the student. But they also, and no pun intended, but superintend the discussion with their wisdom. That's, that's the real uh, value. Fair points. Now, let's talk about some positive aspects. Uh, all you hear about not all, but a lot you hear about has to do with the negative aspects of kids staying home. Parents are unemployed. There could be some child abuse issues. Uh, you know, the school comes to the home just like when the workplace comes to the home. That creates new problems. But are there any positive aspects of this? I mean, I had seven brothers and sisters, and when we were home for the Hong Kong flu, we liked being home because everybody had fun. We were sick, but it was a family thing, right? Is there anything positive we can take out of this? Well, sure. I've talked with many superintendents who say they're having meals with their families for the first time in, in who knows how long. And so it's required us to um, run from one treadmill to the next in terms of busyness to say, wait a minute, the treadmill is only at home. <laughs> um, and so I, I think, yes, we circle the wagons at home. And, and by the way, so much of this begins at home anyway. Are we having productive dialogues in the home? And yes, as you referred to, the home is not a safe place for so many, but in places where it is a safe place, now is the time to be saying, what are your thoughts? How are you seeing things? Um, you know, what, what would you recommend going forward? And what we're going to find is students have been thinking about this, kids. And by the way, there's a line here, Chuck. I'm not talking about kids who are pre-K through maybe fourth or fifth grade. I'm not talking so much about that, although I want to hear their voice. But fifth, sixth grade and above, they are ahead of us in technology. They have a better pulse of what's really going on. And, and so we, we ought not to put them in their place. Paul Tem, ASIS School Safety and Security Council, one of my favorite guys in the school space, really knows what he's talking about and speaks in plain language we can all understand and learn from. Mr. Paul, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Magazine, and let's, uh, let's check in next month and see what's going on. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you very much. Dr. Diana Kincannon is a forensic psychologist, associate provost at Alliant International University, and dean of the California School of Forensic Studies. She is also a member of the ASIS International Professional Development School Safety and Security Councils. Dr. Diana Concannon, welcome to Security Management Highlights. Pleasure to be here. I always love talking to you. I always feel more intelligent when we're done speaking, and that's a good thing. Today, we're going to talk about security in context. A better way to say it is contextual intelligence. Fascinating subject. Give us a, give us a definition of that. Contextual intelligence is how we 
think about um, information, how we process information cognitively through thought, um, it's easier to contrast it with emotional intelligence, which was popularized years ago as a useful skill for interacting with people, working with people emotionally, reading their emotions, relating to them emotionally. In contrast, contextual intelligence is how we use information um, intellectually to be able to read a situation. It relates in from a security perspective to advanced situational awareness. So it allows us to engage in decision-making that is of a more evolved and organized way. And particularly with the events that are happening right now where rapid decision-making is needed in order to respond to events that are evolving so quickly, so dramatically, but that require very rational and reasoned decision-making, contextual intelligence can assist with that. Myself and my colleague, Michael Center, had come up with an acronym, COPE, to organize how one can use contextual intelligence and train um, one's officers, security officers, and others, law enforcement, as to the use of contextual intelligence in a very practical way. And so COPE stands for culture, organizational values, politics, and environment. So obviously, one of the things that one wants to consider is when applying contextual intelligence is culture. What culture, what cultural dynamics influence the situation? What do we need to consider? And this is in particular useful, very useful so that we can really look to what unconscious biases might be at play what are my unconscious biases in a particular situation that might influence my decision-making in a way that isn't productive? So we all know, um, especially right now, the, the topic of unconscious biases is getting some much-deserved attention. Unconscious biases are a normal way of processing information. We all are subject to them. We, it is the way we organize our thoughts. We base what we are experiencing, what we are perceiving, we put it into templates based upon our past experiences. And that's one way we manage the enormous amount of information that we are in contact with on a daily basis. The problem with it is it also can lead us to stereotype. And that stereotyping could lead to bad decision-making if we are presuming, for example, that the individuals with whom we are interacting are going to behave in a particular way or are behaving because of particular motives that are inaccurate, that aren't true to what is actually happening. So it blinds us to events that are unfolding um, because of certain things. So in the contextual intelligence, we take a step back and look at cultural influences that could in fact be influencing someone's behavior rather than our beliefs about what might be influencing someone's behavior. And we use that intelligence to better inform our decisions. Um, so that's one facet. Organizational values is particularly important to the relevancy of security. Um, so if I'm acting on behalf of my agency, I want to align with what the overall organizational values are. And we see this, for example, right now in the defund law enforcement movement, particularly when it comes to school resource officers. There's a lot of concern 
in the current narrative that school resource officers are criminalizing disciplinary action against students. And the organizational values of most uh, educational institutions is to educate rather than to discipline in a harsh way. And so looking at those organizational values, we have an opportunity to see how school resource officers can use their training in de-escalation, in um, the type of community policing model, and look at how that might be better applied to align with the organizational values of educational institutions and make uh, school resourcing um, more, strengthen it, make it more in alignment with uh, the educational institutional values and also benefit the safety and welfare of the educational community. So there's an example of, of how the organizational value aspect of contextual intelligence could be used. Political uh, aspect of, of contextual intelligence is looked at as the larger political environment in which an event is taking place. And obviously we have many right now that are going on globally, COVID-19 pandemic being one of them. And the effects of that that we're seeing in some of the politicalization of the, the social distancing practices, for example, and the impact that that is having on individuals' interactions with each other. There would just be one example of things to consider when making decision-making, uh, when making decisions in this environment. There's also the local environmental um, decision-making aspect of contextual intelligence. So looking at how, for example, the local politics, again, of COVID-19 is playing out in Los Angeles versus Tennessee. There's a difference that there are regional differences there, as we know that there, there likely are, and what the impact that might have on decision making. So looking at all of these as a way to better understand the dynamics, to take a step back and to slow down in a way the cognitive processes to look at the landscape a little bit more thoroughly, but yet still be able to rapidly engage in rational decision-making that keeps the environment, keeps the community safer, which is ultimately our goal. Can we teach contextual analysis and intelligence to security personnel, or is this something you kind of have to learn on the job or intuitively know? It was previously thought that being able to think contextually was something that you either were able to do or you weren't. But what we've learned when this has been applied in for business management um, training or even in sports training, we've learned that actually this is a skill. This can be learned. This type of thinking can be taught. And so it's a matter of, and that's why we try to organize the framework of COPE to be able to give individuals tools from which they can start to think about these things, start to look at the different facets of contextual intelligence and consider each of them. And the more one practices looking at these different elements, the easier it becomes to do so more intuitively, more naturally, and more quickly. And these these elements are important to consider in decision-making, just, just as it is in any type of situational awareness training, 
looking at these these elements, um, the elements of contextual intelligence, will improve decision making and provide a uh, framework for making decisions that consider multiple facets of any situation and are more likely than to be uh, longer lasting and have a, a far more reaching impact. Dr. Diana Kincannon speaking about the contextually intelligent security team. Dr. Diana, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for coming on Security Management Highlights. It is my pleasure. In this month's ASIA Certification Spotlight, I speak with Mr. Alexander Chorin, CPP, PSP, the Managing Director of RoskaSolutions.com. Mr. Alexander, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Chuck, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background, how you got into security, and give us a little, a little view, overview of your path to success. So my background actually is in engineering. I've always had a tremendous interest in technology, and early in my career, I worked for several engineering consulting firms. And they exposed me to the security industry, specifically nuclear security. And through there, I worked on several international infrastructure projects as well. And I felt like while those firms put out terrific products and services, security wasn't necessarily their specialty or their focus. So um, as I'm, I'm sure you found in your career, the security management field is, is actually quite small. You start seeing familiar faces come up time and again. And I thought, with this international experience I had, my network and my engineering background, I could start and go out on my own and actually have a focus towards security. So um, a little bit of uh, uh, good luck and hard work, I think, put me in the, um, uh, thankfully, in, in the direction for security. So it was with that that I decided to branch out to form Roska Solutions. I, I love this path. You don't often hear of people coming from outside the security industry with another discipline to join the security industry. Uh, as you were as you were progressing uh, in security management, tell us what you found valuable and, and what kind of lessons did you learn uh, that, that you really maybe you hadn't brought with you from the engineering world? You know, I think that there's a parallel to the engineering world and it's, it's one that um, I see in the security management field and it all helps in my own business is that uh, there is a disconnect and it's between the frontline officers or the guys out in the field and the individuals at a desk who are making the decisions for what processes and procedures are being put in place. And I think that there's that disconnect that those two are not often speaking the same language. So in my experience in engineering, you see that a lot as well. Uh, there's a disconnect between the guys who are, who are hammering away at a calculator and the executives that are, that are making the financial decisions. I, I think it's a matter of addressing that in the security world to, to make sure that you're speaking the same language and that you're addressing the needs as they're going to be implemented and, and eliminate that divide that, that keeps good practices from being developed and um, uh, acted upon in the field. Spoken like a true engineer, that's an excellent Excellent observation. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, there is this huge disconnect between groups like that. So let's talk about your certification. You decided mm -hmm. at one point to get your CPP and then PSP. You have two mm -hmm. ASI certifications. Yeah. Let me know how you decided to do that first and then, you know, why you think it's so valuable. In my experience as an engineer, I had seen many interactions and projects struggle or fail because they brought together a technically minded engineer on one side of the table with an executive who's wondering what can this technology investment do for me, for my business, or how can this streamline operations? And those two individuals see the benefit of a particular solution, but they don't share that common language. 
So the ASIS certification provided that common framework for which these individuals across the security spectrum can communicate effectively. Um, after going through the certification, the CPP, for example, you know, those with a law enforcement background gain knowledge of financial management tools and metrics, and those in the C-suite can better understand officer operations and security technologies. Tell me about PSP. Uh, you do see a lot of CPPs and, and PSPs, not always together, though. Yeah, I thought that the PSP was kind of a natural extension of my engineering work. I had the good fortune of doing a lot of security work in the nuclear field and actually getting some hands-on experience. So I, I do think that was probably a rare, I'm a rare example of somebody that has worked with a lot of intrusion detection systems from specifying, testing, installation. And so the PSP was um, a lot of things that I'd worked on kind of in my back pocket. That was a first step for me to really bite off into the SIS world and wrap my arms around it and figure out where I wanted to go from there. So the PSP was kind of a natural extension of the work that I'd already done, and uh, I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. So you have your engineering background degree. You've added CPP and PSP. Do you think the ASI certification, I don't know, gives you some street creds in the security world? Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that's very fair. So I, I think a lot of listeners out there might have membership, and some may have the certification, but they know, you know, they, they've perused social media and LinkedIn and things like that. And my business, for example, is primarily international. I know that when I need help on a project, I'm going to look through my network, through my Rolodex of individuals and see who stands out. And you're looking to apply a filter to individuals. Maybe it's where they've traveled, where they went to school. But in security management, you're looking for those initials behind the name. That's a way to quickly sort through who is going to have that shared language, that perspective that I can leverage and, and be a valuable asset to me if I'm looking to expand my business or hire somebody for a job or seek regional insights. So I, I do think it lends a little bit of street credit to show that they've invested a good amount of work on their, their own time and they're smart enough to, to pull together the resources and execute the, the studying and preparation for that exam. And I, I think it does pay off when you're, when you're able to put those initials up there. It garners you that bit of street cred and it can gain opportunities and open doors. So I, I really seek that out in the individuals that I work with. Alexander Choran, CPP PSP. Thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights and good luck to you in your expanding career. Thank you so much, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity.